all of us exists a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And what a fixed mindset feels like is when you engage in a challenge or you experience a setback or you experience friction, a fixed mindset says, wow, that setback I'm experiencing is a reflection of my my capabilities. Uh, it, it impacts my sense of self-worth. I'm not good enough. I'm not the type of person that can do math problems or I'm not the type of person that you know can swim or that I can you know have meaningful long-lasting relationships. That's really a fixed mindset. The other side of, of the coin really is this growth mindset and the growth mindset is the idea that when I engage in things that are hard, or I'm experiencing friction, or I'm experiencing setbacks, I'm not experiencing it as a judgment on my self-worth, but rather that this is what it feels like to get better. That friction I'm feeling is actually my brain rewiring, my body rewiring. It, this is what it feels like to get better. And this is not a game of perfect, this is a game of progress, and I am progressing in a positive way. So, Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr., and today I bring you Pat Dossett. When I was a Division I All-American athlete, I was hyper-focused and I was able to take consistent action that allowed me to be one of the best in the country at what I did. Well, for years after I was done competing, I just struggled to stay focused on my goals day in and day out. I was easily distracted, so I wasn't able to stay consistent, the kind of consistency that you need to have to achieve goals that are meaningful to you. It was discouraging for me. I felt like I was just slipping kind of into mediocrity. Then after interviewing some of the highest performers in the world, Olympians, CEOs, billionaires, best-selling authors, I discovered how they do it. I discovered 18 powerful and sometimes weird tactics that they use to stay focused at work, focused on the right things while also living a balanced life. And if you start using probably just three of these today, you're going to get more done in the next eight hours. I promise. This is not tomorrow, not next week. These will work today. I guarantee it. It's like magic, but they're real world solutions to it. People like you and me want the ability to stay focused, avoid distraction and be consistent. I use at least four of them every day and have used all of them at some point. Now I'm able to stay focused while I'm at work and get probably 50 to a hundred percent more done each day. I'm more present when I'm home with my wife and four kids. And the result is I have a stronger relationship with my family and I'm still able to achieve incredible goals like being selected to give a TEDx talk at one of the biggest TED events in the world, like launching a podcast and talking to A-list guests and running a half marathon, all of this while having a full-time job that includes frequent travel, working nights and weekends and all that good stuff. So you're going to find solutions on this list that are going to surprise you. Grab your copy of the 18 Tactics to Staying Focused at Work. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash focus. That's jimharshawjr.com slash focus. Pat is a Navy SEAL and the co-founder of a new company called Made4. And he's the co-founder with Blake Mykoski. And Blake is the founder of Tom's Shoes. Maybe you've heard of Blake. Maybe you've heard of Tom's Shoes. And they basically are one of the innovators of social entrepreneurship. And basically the business model is buy one, give one. You buy a pair of shoes from Tom's and they donate a pair of shoes to somebody in need. And so these two guys teamed up, Blake, a an entrepreneur, and Pat, a Navy SEAL, and they created a company that's based on science. And this is a personal development company, and it will help you develop the habits that you need to live your best life now. And it's totally analog. It's not digital. It's not an app. It's not on a website. It's really fascinating. And it's all been based on research. And in this interview, Pat gives us some insights into a few of these habits that they teach you how to implement and why they're important. But more excitingly, at least for me, is the, his story of becoming a Navy SEAL. He talks about some of the hardest days of becoming a Navy SEAL. He talks about Hell Week. Uh, he talks about his hands swelling up to five times their normal size. But without further ado, let's dive into my interview with Pat Dusset of Made For. Pat, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Jim. Let's just start with this. Uh, Tell us about your path to becoming a Navy SEAL. So when I was in 
seventh grade. I, I born and raised in Texas, and um, for anyone that's spent any length of time in Texas, they know that football is a big part of culture and um, and just the way of life in Texas. So I grew up playing football as a young kid, playing football in high school, um, and I was always a, a little bit of a bigger Husky person. But when I was in seventh grade, I read a book about the SEAL teams uh, called Rogue Warrior, written by a gentleman named Dick Marcinko. And for whatever reason, that book planted the seed inside me to say that, man, that sounds like the hardest thing that you can do. Uh, it sounded like a, an amazing, great adventure. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And so from that day forward, I always kept that in mind in anything that I was engaged in that ultimately where I want to end up, you know, post high school, post college is that I want to be a Navy SEAL. And so that really became my focus. But it wasn't until I finished my senior year of football season in high school that that I really, it was the first time that I stopped lifting heavy weights, stopped eating all this food and, and started running for the first time, started, you know, hopped in a pool, started swimming and really taking more deliberate steps towards, all right, let's prepare for this. And I, and I was fortunate enough um, graduating high school to be accepted to the Naval Academy. Um, so I went to the Naval Academy in 1998 and spent four years there, you know, with that mindset of, hey, I want to be a Navy SEAL. This is what I'm working towards. What I found out when I showed up to the academy was that not everyone gets to be a Navy SEAL that wants to be a Navy SEAL. So it's a really competitive process out of that school. I think we started with around 100 people my freshman year that really had a strong interest in being becoming a Navy SEAL, but they only have around 16 slots a year. And so you have to compete and you have to perform in, you know, both in academics and in leadership and and you know, these physical screening tests and show that, you know, you can be one of these people that will be successful coming out of the academy. When I showed up at the Naval Academy, I found out that, all right, not only do I have to compete for these slots, but they're really hard to get and there's no real clear path towards that. But that every year, one or two people that boxed were able to get slots to SEAL training. And so I thought, all right, well, that's interesting. I've never really boxed before, but that's that's what I'm going to do. And so I tried out for the boxing team and I worked really hard and um, I'm not, I don't consider myself an athletic person, but I have a hard head and I, I could punch really hard and I could work really hard. And so that allowed me to, to have some, you know, a little bit of success in boxing. And fortunately, by the time senior year came around, uh, I was one of the 16 uh, people that got a slot, one of the 16 midshipmen that, get, that got a slot to SEAL training. So, And that's that's when the work begins, right? <laughs> that's, right. That's when the work begins. Yeah. You do all this work. It's funny. You do all this work to get to this place where you finally find out your senior year, you know, are you going to be able to go do what you want to do, or do you have to go do something different? And I found out and it was, you know, at first it was, man, this is amazing. I feel so great. I shared it with my parents and they were really excited. And then a very short while later, maybe five minutes later, my mom called me back in tears and she's like, I always knew you wanted to do this, but I never thought you'd actually do it or that you'd get picked <laughs> up for it. And like, now I don't want you to do it. And so, you know, that was, that was funny, but it was wild for us, you know, a senior at the Naval Academy, was when 9-11 happened. And so, you know, prior to that point, I knew I was training and I knew that I wanted to have a role and to be a leader in the SEAL teams. Um, but the SEAL teams at that time, it was still a little bit, there wasn't a lot of work for them. It was more around, you know, you're going to train hard, you're going to have this mindset, you're going to be in this community of like-minded people taking human performance and taking tactical performance to the next level. But when 9-11 happened, at the academy, everyone, you know, right away, all the civilians got pushed off the yard. Uh, the Marines threw up barricades, you know, man machine guns. They started rotating uh, the midshipmen. Traditionally, we would eat all 4,000 midshipmen at one time. Uh, in King Hall, they started rotating us so that we weren't all in one place at the same time in case the Naval Academy was a target. And it solidified or clarified quickly, made very clear that this work and this profession and the service that we were about to embark on it was very real, has very high consequences. And no longer was it this cool thing that I was being a part of. Now it was this really important thing with an important mission set and something that I needed to bring my A game towards. Um, and so once I got that slot, you know, again, it just honed my focus. So every day I was thinking about, am I taking steps closer towards being the best SEAL officer, SEAL leader that I can be? Or am I taking, taking steps away from that? Because we just, the, the circumstances didn't allow for uh, any margin of error. 
I find a lot of folks get out of the role, you know, they go through high school, then maybe college and they get a job and check all the boxes, you know, they buy a house, get married, kids, all those kind of boxes. And they lose their mission for their life. I mean, was it easier for you to do something that was really, really, really hard? Like you said, one of the, you read the book and said, this is one of the hardest things that you can do. You had a mission and a vision for that. Does that allow you to do hard things? Oh, it's such a great point. I think it is an extreme luxury to have a clarity of purpose or a mission to which you can map your actions to. And I was very fortunate that at a young age, I connected with something in a very visceral way that I knew that's what I wanted to do. And that helped guide me and helped give me energy when the road got really hard or I faced challenges along the way towards joining the, joining the SEAL teams. So I think it's incredibly important and it's a luxury when you can find that. Um, it, I do believe that it it not only insulates you against the friction that you're going to experience, but it uh, enables you to unlock capacity in yourself that you otherwise might not be able to. What was the hardest part for you in SEAL training? Hmm. It's funny. Everyone, I, I believe people have this, this misconception about SEAL training that... That it's hard. It's actually it's actually really easy. <laughs> that, well, maybe to you know, uh, no, it is always hard. I, it's hard for everyone. But this idea, you know, I, I have some friends that are, are triathletes, and they they like to compare. They try to make comparisons between you know training to be a seal or training for an operation and their training for performing an event. And the thing that I always tell them is, you know, seal training is different, and that. If you're a triathlete or you're a professional athlete and you're training for an event, you're taking great care and it's not that you're working any less or, or more hard, but you're taking great care to set yourself up to perform under optimal conditions, right? You want your gear right. You want your uh, your equipment just right. You want the your you know, your mindset and your hydration levels and your fuel level. You know, like everything wants to be perfect so that when it comes time to perform, you give yourself the best opportunity for success. And that's one, that's one way to do it in seal training. And a great example of this is hell week. So, you know, the first phase of training, uh, is about eight weeks long and, uh, nine weeks long. And the fifth, sometimes six week of that training is something called hell week. And really this first phase of training is all about, let's just weed people out and figure out who's worth investing more resources and time in to give them greater skill sets. And so the, the fifth or sixth week is hell week. And Hell Week is this crucible event where we lose most people. So my class, I believe we started with around 220 people. We made it to Hell Week with around 150. We came out of Hell Week with 36. Now, wow. Hell Week, you're you're staying awake for the entire time. You're cold. You're wet. You're running everywhere with boats on your heads. You're carrying telephone poles. You're doing all the things that you know people may have seen in movies or in TV shows or read about in books. It's a very, very challenging time. And it's probably one of the hardest parts of SEAL training. You would think, all right, going into Hell Week, here's a physical event. I'm going to go in well-rested, healthy, well-fed, You know, have all these foundational things in place so that I can perform at my best in Hell Week. But what in actuality happens is you show up to Hell Week and for two days prior to Hell Week starting, you're either living in a tent or you're you're parked in a classroom and you're told hell week is going to start at any moment. And so you're a little bit on edge for 24 to 48 hours, not sure when hell week is going to start. Everyone's got some form of low grade pneumonia. They've got overuse injuries in the form of shin splints and, you know, knee issues and, you know, bad backs and shoulders and joints just from the nature of training up into that point. So everyone is starting hell week, tired, broken, maybe even a little bit malnourished because you're just cramming whatever you can cram in the classroom. You're not set up to perform at your highest level. And then they put you in the hardest training that, you know, I think some would argue in the world, certainly in the U.S. military, the hardest training you can go through and you're expected to perform. And so I'd say all that to say, you know, what was the hardest part of, of training for me? I think Everyone's got something, whether it's running or swimming or the cold or uh, not getting sleep or just the long duration of and nature of, of SEAL training. But 
what training does a really excellent job of, what SEAL training and the SEAL instructors do a really excellent job of, is finding what that pain point is for you and pushing on it as many times as they possibly can until you either callous up and find a way to work through it and to find comfort in the discomfort or you fold and and you you give into the moment. And so I think, you know, that's that's how I think about it. And for me, you know, it different points of training, it was in, you know, it was different things. Sometimes it was, you know, running with a boat on my head through soft sand and thinking, man, I can't, there's no way that I can make it 20 more feet. I feels like my neck's about to break. Um, my lungs are burning. My legs are on fire. And and having to, you know, uh, having to adjust the finish line and bring it a little bit closer to say, I can't make it 20 feet, but I can make it five feet. And then once I get five feet further, I'm going to see where I can go next. Um, I was always playing that game, whether or not I was really cold, I was really tired, I was really, you know, what you, you name it. So, um, so you had those moments and you thought, I can't go another 20 feet. But I can I can go five, but for, for I, sure I can't do this. And, and did you have the I guess the fear of failure and, and doubt that I, I don't know if I can make it through this, but I'm just going to put one more foot in front of the other and see where this see where this goes. I never feared failing. Um, I never thought I was going to fail at something. But I will say when Hell Week started for us, um, the first part of it is loud and they're running around and there's you know, fire hoses and simunition going off and it's, it's supposed to induce a little bit of chaos. And it's, it's wild within the first 10 minutes, you're not doing anything that's any harder than what you've done up until that point. But you have people that quit during that time that ring the bell and decide, man, I can't continue. And I remember thinking in that moment when we, when we started Hell Week that, wow, I've been working so hard for so long, I've read so much, been waiting to get to this point, this crucible event, and here it is. And I had this sense, and I've said this before, but I had this sense that in some ways it's like you're on a roller coaster that's clicking up the hill very slowly and you know you can't get off and that you're going to go over this hill and you're going to be on this ride. It just so happens that this ride meant that I was going to be awake for five days and that I was going to be, I was already cold, I was already tired, and I was already sick and all these things. And I remember for a few seconds thinking, wow, here it is, we've started. And just the enormity of the fact that there was no getting off this ride was like, it was almost like trying to look at the sun. It was too much. I was like, man, I can't think of that. It's too much information to process right now. Let's bring it back to here and now. And let's let's make it, you know, 10 more feet, or let's make it to the first time that we're going to get out of this ocean and, you know, do our first, uh, your, our health and welfare check. So that's, um, that's probably the closest I came to, um, having, uh, I don't, I don't want to say failure, but this recognizing that this is an enormous undertaking and I can't, I can't undertake it all at once. So let me just focus on what's within my control and the small steps that I can take here and now. And I want the listener to process that and really understand that that you know, we look at people like a Navy SEAL, for example, and we say, man, they can endure incredible pain and suffering and keep going. But it's hard. It's hard. It's not easy. I mean, doing anything, achieving anything meaningful is is going to have some kind of pain and suffering. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. It might be simple, but it's probably not going to be easy. So Pat, for you, what did it feel like when, you know, the moment that you knew you were going to be a Navy SEAL, the moment that you became a Navy SEAL, what was that moment like? Was it, was it like, you know, were you like exhausted or in laying on the ground or were you like cheering and excited or was it just kind of like, okay, I knew this was coming. I mean, what was the emotion like in that moment? What, what was that moment? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Well, there's, there's probably a few different moments where this came into play. One is once Hell Week got secured and you knew that you that you had made it through that week, that's a big event. And you know, obviously making it through that is a is a big milestone in, in SEAL training. That's when you transition from wearing a white t-shirt to a brown t-shirt. So now you're you're not in the club, but you have at least demonstrated that you are worth investing more time in training in. And so when we secured from Hell Week, it was a and I looked out across the 35 other members of my class it was pretty cool. And I definitely took some time to savor that moment. It's wild. I'll, I'll, I'll share this with the listeners that, you know, you go through this entire week and you're able to 
to take your body and your mind and your mind to places that you never thought possible. But once they tell you the week is over and you do your final medical check and showers and stuff, your body is like, okay, now it's time to pay the price for this last week. Your hands swell up, you know, five times your normal size, your legs swell up. You literally have to get bust to, to the barracks room, which is probably 400 meters away. You can't walk that 400 meters. Your body is just in a state of shock that like, okay, now it's time to, uh, now it's time to deal with the stress that you've, that, that you've induced on me for the last, you know, for the last week. But I, I, I say all that to say there was definitely a point in time. I remember grabbing a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and laying out on the grass outside <laughs> my barracks and just savoring it. And I was so tired, but I was like, I want to remember this moment. I called, I believe I called my parents. I said, Hey, I made it. Um, and I just sat there and ate this pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, chocolate chip cookie <laughs> dough. And I was so happy. Um, and so then, and then, you know, the next week we were right back in training and it was like, all right, let's rise to the next occasion. The next point in time that I really think I knew it was really graduating from what we call SEAL qualification training, uh, SQT. And so once you make it through our basic program, which is BUDS, you go through SQT, uh, which is more advanced training on the weapons and tactics and demolitions and all the basic skill sets that you need to show up and be able to function and serve on a SEAL team. Um, and that is the time when you finish SQT that you're you're given your trident and that you're, you become a SEAL. What I felt on that day was I certainly felt pride, but what I think I felt more than anything was a tremendous responsibility that, wow, I've been given this, I've been given this trident, I've been welcomed into this community. And now with this, this new role and this, you know, this title of being a Navy SEAL, I've got to work really hard every day to, to make sure that I'm doing my job well and that I'm, I'm a source of strength and making this community better. And that I'm not, I'm not in any way, you know, hindering our community's ability to do what we need to do. So I just, I felt a tremendous responsibility and it's like, okay, great. We did all the work to get here, but now it's time to get to work and every day matters. Um, so. Pat, I could talk with you all day about what it was like your experiences as a Navy SEAL, but I want to switch over the conversation now to made for you retire from the Nate from the seals and you know, you went through a transition and you and Blake decided to start this company. How did made for come about? Uh, let's just start with that. And, and I want to learn more about the company, but how, how did this come about? Yeah. You know, it came about on a surfing trip. Actually, we were Blake and, and I, and a few of our friends were on a, a surfing trip together and our, our, trips we we do these we have a group called the rugged adventure club kind of a name and jest but group of guys and once a year we try to get together and go off and, and engage in different activities and the trips are always one part relaxation and camaraderie with friends and you know a lot of fun and some adventure but the other part is meaningful purpose purposeful dialogue uh, and conversations and we want to make sure that we are best supporting our friends and one another uh, you know in our journey and so one of these, uh, one there was a question that was asked. I believe Blake, Blake posed the question to the group during one of our meals. He said, "You know, if you guys could work on anything, and you didn't have to worry about money, or you didn't have to worry about you know professional development or whatever the thing is, like if you could just work on a passion project, what would you want to work on?" And so went around the table, and when it got to me, I said, "You know, I don't, I don't know what form this takes, but I've always been." interested in this idea of human potential and human performance and helping people be be their best and bring their best to the world. I you know I said I saw it when I was in SEAL training. We you know like I said we started Hell Week with 150 people. We came out with 36 and class went on to graduate 17 original members. Those 17 people when you look at them are rather unremarkable looking. There's nothing about them that you would say, okay, that person is going to make it. And in fact all of the biggest, fastest, strongest people, those that most looked the part out of central casting were some of the first to go away. And for me, that was really the first time that I saw, wow, there's something that these 17 people are doing well. Uh, it's a mindset. It's some foundational habits and practices that they engage in that allow them to perform at a, an extraordinary level. And so when Blake asked this question, I said, yeah, you know, I, there's something here from my past experience in the SEAL teams. And then when, you know, when I transitioned out of the military, I used 
business school as a way to to make the transition and to figure out what I was going to work on next. And I took a lot of you know traditional business classes, but one of the business school classes that really stayed with me was an actually an undergraduate class that I audited. So I was already already the old you know seal on the back of the business school, you know, group going through business school classes. And now I'm like the really old guy sitting in the back of this freshman, sophomore, undergraduate class. But it was taught by this woman, Angela Duckworth, um, who who is really well known for her research in the in the field of grit and grit being a determining factor for success. But the class was an introduction to positive psychology. And for those of you that, that may not be aware of this field, uh, it, it really was championed and and pushed forward to another level by a gentleman named Dr. Martin Seligman out of the University of Pennsylvania. And the whole idea is that there are two ways that you can direct your attention. You can focus your attention on minimizing downside risk and treating disease and focusing on negative outcomes and bad behaviors. Um, that's half of the equation. The other half of the equation is focusing on what are the you know the the actions that you can take, the environmental conditions that you can set up, the mindsets you can cultivate that allow you to grow what's good inside you? What are these positive pursuits that you can engage in that help you be your best? And a lot of what they talked about in that class, and that has been proven out through you know evidence based research and in the works of many labs, mapped to what I saw in the SEAL teams and what people were leveraging to perform at a very high level. So when Blake asked, asked that question, I said, well, these are the two you know, vantage points that I have. I would love to work in a space that um, captures some of this and and works with people, teams, organizations to, to make a meaningful difference in, in the world. And so right away, Blake was very excited about it. You know, Through his work with Tom's, he's obviously uh, in founding Tom's Shoes, He's always been someone that moves with a great deal of purpose and intention and uh, wants to serve uh, you know, movements and causes bigger than himself. But he was really interested in this space as well. So we came together and, and, and started ideating on different ideas. And, um, and that's really how Made Forward got started. And you guys launched a company that was you know, in the personal development space. Um, but you didn't just launch a company. You guys did the research to really try to figure out what works and what doesn't work. Tell me about that process and how you figured out what these things are. And you boiled it down to 10 things. And so what was the process to get to 10 things? So we started, and I, I'll be the first to say that initially we probably brought a lot of ego into this endeavor and pursuit. And so when we first aligned on, hey, we want to build a business that helps people be better and realize their capacity to be better, that was our that was our vision for the company. We said, if we can help someone bring their best to the world, then that's going to make the world a better place. Um, then it became, all right, what are we going to do? And we thought, well, Blake, with his resources and personal interest, he gets exposed to a lot of cutting edge, emerging um, you know, tools and, you know, ways of thinking and, and things for personal development that, um, that are, are pretty powerful and things that, you know, frankly, a lot of us just don't get exposed to or don't have the time to get exposed to. And then, so we thought, well, from what Blake has seen, that's one area. And then I have a different perspective from my time in the teams. We'll just come together and we'll distill out the things that we think are the best. And then we'll build a program around that and then and find a way to give that to people in a, in a meaningful and impactful way. But as we started doing more research. And as I started reflecting more um, and bringing on, talking with different advisors and, and experts in this in these various fields, the more I realized or came to appreciate that it's not these high speed um, things that you might traditionally see in the marketplace, technology or pills or whatever that is going to make a meaningful difference for people. In actuality, it's some very foundational practices of body and mind that for whatever reason, we've grown disconnected from, that that is where the most value can come from. And that's where we decided to spend our time creating a program around these very foundational practices that we know are effective, that work. It's just a matter of how can we design a program that helps people connect with them in a meaningful and enduring way. And so early on, uh, 
first through a number of conversations and collaborating sessions, Dr. Andrew Huberman and I work together. Andrew is a neuroscientist, runs uh, a lab out of Stanford University. He's a professor of neurobiology. And he really helped me think through um, these things and look, looking at the brain as a unit of analysis for how can we impart positive change, give people positive pursuits to not only make a difference in the brain, but also in the body and in their life and in their mindsets. So that's how we started. And uh, we ended up with 10. And so I'm guessing one of these 10 is like drinking beet juice while doing yoga in a hyperbaric chamber. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish that would be so easy to sell. <laughs> yeah, we're all no, looking I, for I, that I, that next shiny object, right? That's it. Yeah, look, I if I wanted to, and it's funny, I, I joke with a, a number of, of former teammates and, and people that are still in the military about this. Like, it's very easy to transition out and make money if you want to. You can slap a trident on a, a set of pills or a, a slap a trident on a piece of equipment or whatever, and say like, "This is the secret sauce. This is what Navy SEALs do. Do this." And people will buy it because people, we want quick fixes. We want easy solutions and we want things that are going to help us, you know, be our best or perform at our best. The problem with that is, is one, they're just not effective in the long run, right? We've, we've all, we've all experienced or been a victim to chasing a fad or buying some gadget or some widget that we think like, this is going to be the, this is the missing keystone in my life. And once I have this, it's all going to figure, you know, everything's going to fall into place. But the problem with that is, is when you buy those things or you, you make those short-term pursuits or chase those fads and they don't work out and in the long run, it's rare or it's exceptional that they do, you not only feel uh, that you wasted your money and you wasted your time, but you also start to feel a sense of, I'm never going to get what I want. Like you, you feel a reflection of your sense of self-worth and self-value and your ability to, you know, attain the thing that it is that you're looking for. And so when we were working on made for, and we were designing this program, first and foremost, it was let's distill out and let's get rid of all the hype and all the BS and let's strip away the marketing and, and all of that. And let's just focus on essential steps and let's see if we can make the fundamentals if we can deliver the fundamentals in a way that can impart lasting change and that keep people engaged and excited over uh, a long period of time. And so, you know, what I tell our members at Made For is that, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about the packaging and the branding and curating the science and, you know, telling engaging stories and giving you tools and the right, and, you know, distilling out challenges to give you the right steps and figuring out what the right level of support is that we can wrap around all of this. But ultimately the value of made for isn't in any of that stuff. It's how we collectively use all of that to get you to engage in purposeful pursuits and get you to exert effort. And that is where the value is created. It's through the effort that our members exert small steps over a long period of time uh, that they start to unlock um, benefits, some intentional and some surprising uh, as it's right and relevant for them. So. so can we go through a few of these? And for the listener, I want you to really tune into this because these are things that you've heard of before. I don't want you to roll your eyes and go, ah, uh, this again. I want you to think, okay, how do I, this is based on research. This is based on science. These are real things, tactical, actionable things that you can do to improve your performance and live your best life now. So if you've heard these before, figure out how you can implement them. And maybe, maybe Pat, you can, you can help us, you know, the listener figure, figure out how they can actually implement these in their life. So let's start with, uh, pick one. I mean, let's go through maybe three of your favorites to share. Uh, they're maybe most impactful. I don't know if you have any of those in mind, but let's yeah. start with one right now. Yeah, no, it's uh, I, I love this. I think it's gonna be a great exercise. So I, I think maybe I'll talk about one that's more physical in nature and then one that's a little bit more mental. And I believe they, they provide a nice, a nice contrast. So when our members start the program, they don't know what, they really don't know what they're going to be asked to do. They know that they're engaging in this 10 month long program that at a high level, we, we talk about things like nature and social connection and movement and breath and nutrition and gratitude and hydration, all very foundational things, but they don't really know what they're going to be doing. And so the first month I can say this because this, this is out now. And so this won't be a surprise to members, but the first month is focused on hydration. And so you think, wow, all right, 
I, I paid money to do this program and <laughs> you're telling me to drink more water. Um, what's going on here. And so I'll, I'll back up a little bit. One of the, one of the concepts that uh, Dr. Huberman talks about early on in this program is this phenomenon of neuroplasticity. And it's this idea that you really can rewire and change your brain, that you have this capacity over the entire span of your life. It's really a superpower if you think about it, that we can rewire our brain to affect uh, what we do in the day or how our mind works or how we engage in the world over the entire course of our life. And there's really two ways to do it. One is through a short, intense experience. Um, this can be positive or negative, right? I mean, you get food poisoning, you, you're gonna, it's going to be in, wired into your brain that like, I'm going to avoid that piece of food going forward. Or you get into a car accident, or you have the birth of a child, or you get married. Something short and intense that rewires the way that you see yourself and the way that you move through the world. That's one method. I just want to point that out to to the listener. Sorry to interrupt, Pat. But think about this. I, I know a friend of mine, she got in a, it's a friend of my, my wife's friend and neighbor of ours. She got in a car accident and for like six months, she couldn't drive a car. This is a short, intense experience. And I, I remember, you know, my first time drinking vodka or actually vodka had a good experience. <laughs> so it was like a, it was positive connotation. And then uh, like whiskey was terrible. And so this short, intense experience really wires your unconscious mind. Okay. So, yeah. so I want to put that into a, a real world context for the listeners, but go ahead, Pat. Yeah. So Andrew uses this, this terminology that I really like. It's a, a neural systems approach to wellness. And this idea that your brain and your body are wired certain ways and they're agnostic to how you're performing or how you're feeling, but what you do, how you exert your effort and how you direct your attention affect the way that that they work. And so understanding, you know, how you can leverage your neural system for a better performance to be your best and to, to get more from life is, I think is, is a really interesting approach. And so the one way to engage it is through a short, intense experience. The other way is actually through small uh, steps over time. And so directed efforts done with attention and awareness, not only of the effort that you're engaging in, but the effects that that effort is creating. And that is really where the made for program and our made for method is built on top of is this small, consistent effort over time. So with that as a, a context for the program, our first month, we focus on hydration and you think, all right, well, I drink water. Everyone drinks water. And you're right. Everyone does drink water. It is a small thing that you do every single day that everyone does, but something interesting happens when you bring a little bit of attention to that practice. So I, I like to say our hydration practice, our hydration month is 50% about the science of hydration and dispelling some myths and what it means that when you're hydrated and how at very low levels of dehydration on the order of one to 2%, you actually have very real physical and cognitive deficits whether you're winning to those or not, and those can have knock-on effects uh, in your life. And so we make people very aware of, hey, here's what's going on with the science of hydration. Here's how to think about hydration. And what we tell people is, look, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. There's not eight cups of water. There's no, um, there's no specific amount that you should drink. It's all relative based on a variety of factors. So our challenge this month, what we ask our members to do, and we, we have this, this nice, our tool this month is this, we have this nice water bottle with these beads that you move. And the challenge is every time you finish a bottle of water, we want you to move a bead and we want you to recognize that that's a small little win in your day and, and to just track your water throughout the day. At the end of the day, what we ask is that you record how many bottles of water you drink and write a short little reflection in this journal that we provide based on how you're feeling. And so while it's 50% around, you know, figuring out the hydration and what feels right for you, understanding uh, what that means for you, the other 50% is around what happens when you pay attention to a small thing that you do every day and how it affects you and starting to build a more robust connections between your small actions and the small steps and their effects on you. And it sounds so dumb, probably to some people and so simple and so elemental, but I can't overstate how powerful it is for people um, uh, when they engage in this month. And so what we find is that not only do people, you know, recognize that, wow, I wasn't drinking enough water. And now that I'm drinking more water, I'm feeling better. Um, and remember, we never tell anyone how much water to drink. We just say, bring some awareness to this. But what we also see is that 
a lot of pro social, pro physical behaviors start to come out of this, out of this positive pursuit. So not once do we ever talk about stop drinking soda or the the downside effects of, you know, sugary beverages or any of these things. We just say, here's a positive thing for you to do. Uh, But we have members tell us like, wow, for the longest time, I've been trying to kick you know, a, a habit of drinking 20 Diet Cokes a week. And now I don't even have a craving. They just, it just went away all because I just started paying attention to the water. Or we have other members that say, man, I find even by just paying attention to how much water I'm drinking, I, I find I'm moving my body more. I'm more inclined to want to exercise or just get outside more that There are all of these other positive things that once you bring attention to one thing you're doing, you start to have a little bit of attention and awareness to what are the other small things I'm doing throughout my day and how they're affecting me. So that's an example of of a month. And so I want the listener to understand it's not it's not the value of you know you wouldn't pay for a program like this that says drink water because Pat just told us that, but it's the results that you're getting. It's a process that they take you through that gets you to drink more water and gives you gives you results. And, and that's that's the real value here is we know certain things, we just don't always implement them. And you are you know, helping people intentionally implement those. Okay. So you gave us one physical and, and there was another you said that was a mental. Yeah, so, so maybe we'll do something that's a little bit more on the, on the mental side. And everyone knows this term gratitude and is familiar with the concept of gratitude and what it means to express and give thanks. Um, my favorite definition of the word gratitude Uh, is that gratitude is having an orientation towards recognizing and celebrating the good, even when things are bad. And it's a, it's, it is a, I think the words matter here, like this idea of having an orientation or a disposition towards recognizing the good, even when things are bad. And it's something that when I think about immediately, it tells me that, wow, this is something that SEALs do really, really well. In fact, those 17 people that are left at the end of training this is something I would say that they are masterful practitioners of gratitude because they're able to, in real time, figure out when the stress is so high or when the situation is so bad or whatever, they can find a silver lining in it. They can find something to anchor towards that makes them, that gives them energy, gives them resilience, makes them feel better. And they recognize when they share that with their teammates and improves everyone's performance and that there's, um, there is some amplifying effects of that. And so we talk about, you know, we, we have a month focused on the science of gratitude. What happens when you express gratitude, how, when you are developing these neural path pathways or these, yeah, these connections inside your brain around gratitude, the more that you look for opportunities to find moments to be grateful for, the more that you share your gratitude with others, both uh, in informal and formal ways. It's this it's this muscle that once you start working it, it gets bigger and stronger, and it becomes a positive you know trajectory and uh, positive cycle of, of of effort. So we focus a month on gratitude and. And I think a through line that you see through, there's a few through lines to the whole you know, made for program, but one of the through lines is that these practices are things that are within your control. We take an inside out approach to wellness in that we want you to recognize and affirm uh, the value of your effort, um, your directed effort, uh, because you are connecting with something inside of you and putting forth the effort and seeing that the, the returns of that value or that, or that directed effort, these are not outside in approaches that we're saying, here's a prescription for better health. You have to finish this checklist or you have to do this challenge every day or that you have to get to the end of made for, and then you have a list of 10 items that you have to work through every day. That's absolutely not the goal. The goal is when you work your way through 10 months of small deliberate steps over time, and they're directed in the right way, that now your reflexive self is your best self. You've changed the way that you are moving through the world, the way that you're, uh, the mindset or the lens that you're approaching, how you engage with stress or how you engage with positive pursuits. You've reframed it in such a way that you grow in the face of adversity or you grow in the face of stress, or you recognize that, hey, it's not if, but when I'm going to get knocked off track, right? Everyone, yeah. life gets a vote and we don't, this isn't something we need to control. So, and we tell our members this all the time, look, you're not going to do made for perfectly. You're going to get knocked off track. But the important part of that is recognizing when you've gone off track, when you've gone, taken steps away from what your intention is and 
giving yourself a little bit of grace, recognizing, hey, I'm not a machine, I'm human. And when it feels right, nudging yourself back on course and re-engaging. And that process repeated over time is uh, is really powerful. So, And failure is part of the human experience. Does made for in these habits that you're working on developing in your members, do these habits help you be more resilient? 100%. I, you know, the other through line of this program is, and we, Andrew does uh, a lot of work with a, a woman named Carol Dweck out of Stanford, who is uh, well known and regarded for coining the term growth mindset. And so this idea that, you know, at any, that in all of us exists a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And what a fixed mindset feels like is when you engage in a challenge or you experience a setback or you experience friction, the fixed mindset says, wow, that setback I'm experiencing is a reflection of my my capabilities. Uh, it, it impacts my sense of self-worth. I'm not good enough. I'm not the type of person that can do math problems or I'm not the type of person that you know can swim or that I can you know have meaningful, long-lasting relationships. That's really a fixed mindset. The other side of, of the coin really is this growth mindset. And the growth mindset is the idea that when I engage in things that are hard, or I'm experiencing friction, or I'm experiencing setbacks, I'm not experiencing it as a judgment on my self-worth, but rather that this is what it feels like to get better. That friction I'm feeling is actually my brain rewiring, my body rewiring. This is what it feels like to get better. And this is not a game of perfect. This is a game of progress. And I am progressing in a positive way. And so that is something that we, we share a lot with our members and we talk a lot about over the course of the program. I want to hear about a time where you failed, Pat. Is there a time when you personally failed? Um, maybe it was in the SEALs, maybe it was some other part of your life, and you felt that self-doubt or that hopelessness that comes with failure and how you were personally able to move through that? I, I It's funny. When I talk to people, I, I mentor a lot of kids, and a lot of times people look at, they might look at me or someone, you know, that's a seal. They might look at a resume and say like, wow, that person's got it all figured out. Like Naval Academy and seals and award business school and Google. And now he's doing a startup. And like from the outside looking in, it's like that person has just got it dialed in and figured out and everything comes easy to them. And what I always say is, and I joke with my wife is that I don't have any, there's nothing that comes naturally easy to me. I don't have, I'm not naturally gifted in any one thing, but what I am, what I do rely on is that I I work hard and that I'm driven to get better every day. And so that means that I experience lots of setbacks all the times. And I have, I've had some failures, big and small, but I don't like to call them failures. I think, you know, if I'm able to pull myself back and look out over a longer time horizon, something that may seem like a failure in the moment was actually the very thing that I needed in that moment to grow in a different way that enabled my future success. And so, you know, I, I, I'll say it's, it's funny when the last year that I was in the military, I knew that I wanted to transition out. I knew at some point I wanted to have a family and that was something that I was going to work towards. And so I thought, Hey, business school is going to be a great way to do it. And so I applied to only two schools. Uh, I applied to um, Harvard and I applied to Stanford and I worked really hard on my applications. I you know studied for this GMAT test while I was on deployment and uh, came back and I took it, submitted my applications and I scored I got amazing scores on the verbal portion of GMAT and I got really, really bad scores on the math portion of the GMAT and I couldn't figure out why, but I sent my applications off and I didn't hear anything back. Finally, I was able to, and eventually I, I, you know, right at the point where I was getting ready to step out of the military and I was hopeful that I was going to be stepping into, you know, an MBA semester very soon. I got word from both schools that I would not, I wasn't going to be accepted, that I'd been rejected. And that stung. I mean, I felt, I, I was like, man, I've worked so hard. I've dealt with a, a lot and uh, I feel like I have a lot to add. Why are they not seeing the value that I have to add? And I got a little bit of uh, on the record or off the record feedback that like your math scores are just too low. We don't, we're not sure that you can handle a program like this. And so that became my new And focus. I just want to share from, from the outside looking in, Pat, you kind of look at a, you know, Stanford and, you know, these great schools you apply to. And you go, oh, well, he's a Navy SEAL, so it's going to be easy for him to get in. But for the listener, I want you to know, like, no, like it wasn't automatic. It was, he had to work really hard and, and, and he failed here. But uh, go ahead, Pat. Yeah. So that GMAT test that uh, I did not perform in, I ended up taking five more times over the course of the next year. 
Uh, and I can't tell you how hard, I mean, there was not a problem that a GMAT prep book that I didn't work through the problems on. It wasn't, I, I did, that became, I became maniacally focused on getting into a top program and figuring this out. And it took me six tries before I was able to get a score that would allow me uh, to get into, you know, a top, uh, a top tier program. But it, it's not to say that along the way, there were certainly moments of, wow, self-doubt, like, why can't I do this? You know, that I, I saw that fixed mindset start to creep in a little bit, but you know, what I saw, what I think ended up being a year plus of, a lot of setbacks and small failures and not getting in ultimately put me in the exact right place that I needed to be. I, I, it put me in that introduction to positive psychology class. It put me on this path towards, you know, now being co-founder of made for and working on a business that I fundamentally believe in our mission and what we're trying to do. And I'm really excited. And like, had I not gone through those setbacks and that adversity, um, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And, you know, where I'm at today, I also have a wife and, you know, two beautiful, uh, identical twin girls that just turned a year old. And, and so, yeah, you know, that, that, that was maybe one failure. And I, I would tell you that that certainly hasn't been the last failure, right? We're at made for now. We've been working on this for, for three, you know, just over three years. And there have been so many setbacks every day. In fact, I wake up and I have to look at, I just have to know that I am going to fall short on my personal life. I'm going to fall short for my team. I'm going to fall short for my, for my wife. I'm going to fall short as a, you know, a brother and a friend. And I, I have to constantly look at all these areas. I'm going to fall short and prioritize my efforts and say, okay, here are the things that matter today. And I have to be comfortable recognizing that I'm not always going to be successful, but as long as I can keep the big picture in mind and keep the things in mind that um, I hold you know, that are important to me and that I value, my effort is going to get me to where I'm going. And so that's how I think about it. Yeah. And so it's not guaranteed just because you have a, a great entrepreneur like Blake by your side and a neuroscientist like Dr. Huberman, Professor Huberman on your side, it doesn't guarantee you success. And I want the listener to really understand that, that it's not easy. It's not going to be easy. You're facing your own failures. You're facing your own setbacks. That's a normal part of success. Mm. Pat, for the listener who wants to learn more about Made For, wants to follow you, find you, et cetera, how do they do that? Can you share some links? Oh, yeah. Thank, thank, you, for, thank you for asking. So you can find us. Our website is getmadefor.com, G-E-T-M-A-D-E-F-O-R.com. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at madefor, or you can follow me at madefor underscore pat. And yeah, if you if you hop on the website and learn a little bit or have questions, you can chat us on the on the site or send us a note. We're always happy to uh, tell people learn a little bit more about what we're uh, what we're doing, and um, we're excited to bring it to more and more people over the years to come. Excellent, you guys are doing great work, Pat. I appreciate you bringing that to the world, and I appreciate you making time to come on the show. Really enjoyed it, Jim. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you. And for the listener, if you want to grab the action plan, just go to jimharshowjr.com slash action. We'll have all the links to everything that Pat just shared there, as well as the, the highlights, the tips, the tactics, the quotes, everything from this episode, jimharshowjr.com slash action. And as always, until next time, take the time to get clear on your goals and embrace failure as a stepping stone on your path to success. 